Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. I've come to the point where oh. everything has lost its so So and I, I was mentioning this, you pick a variable for a response, whatever that variable may be, and you plot it, the response is a function of dose. And I mentioned like, you know, one drink and you feel kind of relaxed, four drinks and you get silly. And this could be, and I, the thing I was using, silly isn't a very good variable. It's hard to measure silliness. But you know what's really easy to measure is loudness of your voice. And people's voices, this is reliable effect of alcohol, get louder the more they drink. Until you get to the point where you're like, and then they get quiet again, right? So while I'm mentioning being tipsy or feeling silly or doing something stupid, actually literally using something like loudness of your voice or in fact, um, the pitch of your voice, it goes up, your voice gets higher the more you drink. Like, not like this, but I mean, you know, it goes up and it's, it's measurable. It's a real effect. Yes, the rest of the lecture today will be like Les Miserables. It'll be just some whole thing. <laughs> hate musicals. Hate them, hate them, hate them, hate them. You know why? Because people don't walk down the street to start singing. They might do that, but do they sing conversations to each other? No. And then you're saying, but Dave, you like shows on TV with spaceships and explosions. That's a whole different matter we're not talking about. <laughs> This is actually, as I said, a very common uh, shape in those response curve. This is the, the sort of inverted U idea. It's a very common one, uh, depending on how, what you're measuring. If you take a look at these data here, there's a couple of different experiments. I'm not sort of the same experiment. We've got morphine and control, by the way. Um, and the control here, uh, these are two different uh, rats with two different genomes that produce different receptors. Don't worry about it. The important thing to take a look at is what we're using here is morphine's milligram per kilogram. See that? And then we've got activity level. And the activity level here. Okay, yeah, that's activity. So what they're using there uh, is they've got the rat on what's called an open field, which is just a big piece of plywood that has photo beams on it. And you let the rat run around, and how many times he breaks a photo beam in a certain <coughs> amount of time, that's your, that's your dependent variable. So that's one way to measure activity level. So just how many photo beams he breaks. You might have you know, four going one way and two going another, but it's the same for every animal, and you just have to just watch how much they run around. And of course, they can't see the light. It's just, uh, you know, it's infrared light. Okay? On the right, You've got morphine in the loxone. It says morphine, and then we just add the loxone, which, which, which uh, locks morphine, and it doesn't, nothing happens here. This is interesting because what we're using here is number of nose pokes per 20 minutes. What is a nose poke? Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. There is a hole, there's a photo beam in it, and rats poke their nose in it. Did they get anything for this? Absolutely not. But, well, first of all, you've got to understand, they're rats. They don't have a whole lot to do. Secondly, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's searching behavior. 
poking their nose into things, especially into other rats' business, is nothing. Okay. Um, so nose poke is it, it, it's, it's a behavior that they do when they're searching for stuff. Okay. So they this little hole, they poke their nose in it, and it, it, it's sort of a way to look at search. You can see again a lot, and then it goes down. Very typical kind of shit for a dose response curve. Okay. Now, what, by the way, why would that happen? Well, at the early levels of morphine, it's a taming effect. They don't... Uh, rats are... When you put a rat in a great big open enclosure like that, they actually typically aren't curious. Because uh, rats get preyed upon. They are prey items. They aren't predators. So they don't tend to go searching around very much, especially in the light. But if you give them a little morphine, they don't worry so much. Basically, right? They're a little less concerned, if you want to say that. Concerned would be the word I would use. But they're a little less, it's, it's called a taming effect. Now, when you get to too high levels, they don't do any more searching because they're basically at that point strung out on morphine. They're sitting in the corner going, that. Because that's what rats do when they're full of morphine. No, I have a friend who that was a summer job was injecting morphine into rats, and you described that to me. That's, that's exactly what they look like. Just like people, except they've got whiskers and they, you know, smaller. Talk with the effectiveness of any drug. Uh, we have talked with the ED50 and the LD50. The ED50 is the effective dose for 50% of the population. Um, this is obviously going to be subjective when we're talking about something like a, some psychoactive effect. And are you high enough? And do you feel it? Whatever. Now, if you treat it using it as a pain drug, when does the pain go away? That's good. But it's always going to be somewhat subjective. The LD50 is... It's the lethal dose for 50% of the population. That's not subjective. It's a pretty objective dependent variable. Oh, subject is dead. Right? Experiment over. Hide the body. So we can look at something called a therapeutic index, which is the LD50 divided by the ED50. Um, and the higher that number, the safer the drug is. Because if the difference between the amount, like the, the ratio of how much you need to kill you versus how much you need to have an effect is a really big number, it's pretty safe. I can tell you something. The therapeutic index for alcohol is about four. So four times the amount that you need to get drunk in the same amount of time can kill you. By the way, that's higher than, that's lower than heroin. If we were starting society all over again, we'd ban alcohol. Now this isn't always going to be useful because the therapeutic, uh, the TI for like, like nicotine, 
is actually really hot. It's hard, it's hard to smoke so much that you overdose on cigarettes, but they will kill you. Right? So this is like in one bout of drug taking. It's also the case, for example, that the uh, therapeutic index for LSD is virtually infinite. It is almost impossible to overdose on LSD. Yes, I know a cop came to your class in grade eight and told you that people know they're wrong. Uh, it depends what you're doing. Like if you if you combine stuff, you have to present your index lower than four. If you were to say, for example, you've had three drinks and then take some Valium, it starts to drop pretty drastically. Yeah, that's a sobriety effect. Yeah. Um, depending on the sort of psychoactive drugs we're going to talk about, no, they're poisons, obviously. But alcohol is a really dangerous drug, actually. It's scary. And delicious. <laughs> we can also talk about the potency and the effectiveness or, or efficacy of a drug. The ED, look at the ED50 for both drugs. Well, how much do you have to take? And then the one with the lower ED50 is more potent. Also, look, efficacy is what the maximum effect a drug can have. So if we look at something like uh, morphine versus ASA, versus acetyl salicylic acid, or as I call it, aspirin. Um, they both kill pain. Right? They both kill pain. But you need a lot less morphine to kill pain than you need ASA. A lot less. Also, morphine can kill greater amounts of pain than ASA can. <coughs> So, for example, if we're looking at, you know, after, a, after surgery, no one ever, doctors don't just say, well, it's okay, just give him a whole bunch of aspirin. <laughs> He'll be fine. They put you on morphine, right? And then eventually, yeah, there's something perhaps like acetaminophen, you know, acetaminophen or codeine. And then eventually, maybe you will get to aspirin at some point. That's fine. But aspirin, you know, it's like, if you, don't, you ever see a guy, you ever see a war movie where a guy's just been shot, he says, just give me some aspirin. I keep fighting so, morphine is both more potent and more efficacious or effective than ASF. Now, by the way, you have to look at these things in terms of are they doing the same thing? They have the same effect. So, those are both painkillers. Those are both painkillers. So, comparing THC, so the active ingredient in marijuana, to <coughs> alcohol is a, is a silly comparison as far as effectiveness and things like that, right? That's a kind of crazy comparison. Yep, seemed to have lost my... So there's primary effects of drugs and secondary effects of drugs, or primary and side effects, main effects, side effects, these kind of things. And this depends completely on your point of view. Completely on your point of view. This, this is not... When people talk about drugs having a side effect, if you're taking that drug for that purpose, it no longer is the side effect. It becomes the main effect. So if you're taking morphine for pain, the main effect is pain is, is analgesia. And the side effect, as I say there, albeit a fun one, 
The side effect is, it, is, is, is feeling like you can fly. Right? But that's totally based on, on taking this because it really hurts and then the pain's gone. I told you guys my brother-in-law had recently had meningitis, which is really dangerous uh, compared to a lot of other things. He's fine. Um, but, and I was pretty sure he was going to be fine, but still, it's a dangerous thing to contract. And they gave him meningitis. Or they gave him, uh, yeah, they gave him meningitis. The government. <laughs> so did it. Yeah, same people that planned 9-11. Um, I don't believe that. That's bullshit conspiracy. Just to make that completely... Um, no, the, uh, the, the, the hospital gave morphine because it's so much pain, right? And he texted me and, and just, I, I said, so they're giving me really good drugs. And I said, well, you know, they're basically giving me the equivalent of morphine, of heroin rather. Just enjoy it. It's legal right now for you. Yeah. So for him, the main effect was they got rid of the pain, but the side effect was, you know. <laughs> but eventually, a lot of people experience this. It becomes unpleasant. Right, so he just went on they started giving him massive amounts of acetaminophen. Um, if you're taking it because you want to groove the Quicksilver Messenger service, and I chose that because they're a band from the secular band from the 60s, and people used to take heroin. Listen to Because people took heroin and did everything in the 60s. That's, people ran the country full of heroin. How do you think the Vietnam War happened? Nixon, full of heroin, but you know we should probably invade Vietnam. No, that's not at all how it happened. <laughs> Even close. But if you're taking morphine for fun, the side effect is you bump your leg because you're so high, but it hurts all. Right? That's a side effect now, not a main effect. So you got to understand that it's totally based on your point of view. So if you're doing medical marijuana, right, which I think we all are, right? My glaucoma is awesome. Um, I have so little pressure on my eyeball right now. I'm just really hungry. Um... And in that case, if you're doing it for getting rid of, say, pain, then, or, or it's antibiotic effects, marijuana has actually got a, 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 a quite interesting effect. It may be the case that the, the main effect is that, and the side effect is you're high. You're still high. Right? So it, it's something you have to consider. Okay. When we talk about drugs, we talk about, remember we talked about agonists and antagonists with, uh, in the nervous system. We can talk about that with drugs too. What an agonist is, as far as drugs go, is a drug that either makes the nervous system make more of a neurotransmitter, or it mimics a neurotransmitter, okay? Or it acts as a modulator and makes the transmitter more effective. But no matter what, it makes, it, 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 it tends to be, it, it makes the neurotransmitter, yeah, more effective, more of it, it's always more. An antagonist blocks the effect of a neurotransmitter or blocks the effect of a drug. So if we look at something like morphine, morphine is a, an endorphin Agonist, and it actually acts directly, it literally binds to binding sites for endorphins and opens ion channels. 
Flexitine, so that's pr Prozac, is a serotonin agonist. And it does this by blocking reuptake of serotonin. So more serotonin sitting in the synapse. L-dopa, levodopa, is a dopamine agonist. It is a precursor to dopamine that neurons take into the cell and make into dopamine. an endorphin agonist. Because heroin actually is diacetylmorphine. And then what happens is there's an enzyme that, which actually makes it go through the blood-brain barrier ten times faster than it would without the deacetyl group. Um, so locks it off, goes through the blood-brain barrier as acetylmorphine, and that is now a morphine agonist. Antagonist naloxone is the classic example Naloxone is a morphine antagonist. It's an opiate antagonist. Naloxone binds to binding sites for endorphins, but does not open the ion channel. I tend to think of it like if you took some gum and just put it in a lock. It fits. You can't open the door. Okay. So in fact, when you are taking, I think I mentioned this the other day, if you are in a situation where you take it and you've had an overdose of... of, of, of um, Opiate, opiate drugs of some sort, the first thing it's done is you're given a big shot of naloxone. Because it's going to block any more opiates from binding to binding sites. Now, drugs, so does that make sense, agonist, antagonist? Drugs can have additive effects and they can have super additive effects. And the added effect is that you have two drugs that, let's say one drug makes you, one pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. <laughs> From a song that no one here apparently knows. Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit. Look, I was only three, but it was a great song. <laughs> I'll ask Alice when she's 10 feet tall. You know, somebody, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just I'll splice that DMP3 bit in the middle. There he is. What would that be? That would be at uh, 1829. Okay, just make sure. This will make it fun. Sometimes I like my job some days. Um, so you get two drugs. One that makes you high, okay, at uh, a stimulant, and one that's a depressant. And let's say one, the, the high one, the stimulant one, uh, makes you... We're going to measure how high you are in using uh, the, the metric, I believe it's, 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 it's millihighs. So you... <laughs> so, one makes you, gives you four higher, and the other one makes you two lower. So now you're at two. That would be an additive effect. Hardly ever happens. Almost no drugs work that way. They're all, I'm talking psychoactive drugs. A lot of other drugs too, by the way. That's why it always, you know, you decide that it's like, don't take with. Right? And that's why you go to the doctor and they say, you want any other medication? Or you go to a pharmacist if they got like a profile of you, they want to know, right? Because you don't want to die. Because, for example, benzodiazepines, which are basically sleeping pills, things like that, 
and alcohol are super additive. So let's say one drink slows you down like one level, and one, ben, one, one Valium slows you down one level. You take a drink and a Valium and you're down four. It's that kind of thing. Then that's not really the math. But, but I'm saying that they act, it's like, you know, you guys, maybe you guys take it like any statistics, no interactions, it's an interaction. Why does this happen? This often happens because of enzyme induction or enzyme suppression. So the metabolism for one drug stops the metabolism for another drug. And if you stop the metabolism, there's more of the drug available in the system, right? The metabolic pathway for benzodiazepines, we'll talk about this, the metabolic pathway for benzodiazepines is the same as the secondary metabolic pathway for alcohol. So if they're both using it, it's going to slow it down. So there's more alcohol and then also more <laughs> value in your system. Make sense? So this is why, you know, I, I really don't care what you adults do with your own bodies. You stay out of a freaking car around me and my family. Anything else you want, I really don't care. You're grown-ups, you can do whatever you want. Except for you. And <laughs> so you, you stay out, you stay out of cars. That's all I ask. But I'll tell you, here's a piece of advice for your drug, here's some drug-taking advice. Don't mix drugs. It's stupid. Bad idea. Very bad idea. Right? This is, you know, sleeping pills, so in this case, instead of, uh, they, instead of barbiturate, um, by the way, it's pronounced barbiturate, not barbiturate, which drives me crazy. So barbiturate, which, uh, example here, was phenobarbital and vodka. That'll kill you. You take a couple of phenobarbs and a shot of vodka, and you're dead. And this is how, by the way, uh, you guys are mostly too young to remember the Heaven Gate cult, which was a cult that thought that this comet that was coming, Hale Bop, was a spaceship to take them to another planet. It takes all kinds, six and a half billion people in the world, but there was a hundred less one day, because they all took these... I mean, they got happy. They were wasted. Uh, they just didn't wake up. And they all had purple swe uh, sweats on and Nikes. No, they did. It was the weirdest thing. And in fact, it was one of the case people. A friend of mine had on his office door for a while after that uh, a picture of somebody, you know, with Nikes on it. And just said, just do it. <laughs> I won't tell you what faculty member it was, but uh, it, his name rhymes with Will Boobigan. Will Boobigan pretty funny. Then we both agreed it was probably, even though no one was in the cult at the university, it was probably a kind of bad case. So I think, then I think I put it on my office door for a while. And then, uh, then we agreed it was in bad case. Then I think we put it on someone's office door that didn't know it was there. <laughs> so that'll kill you. That's dangerous. This is one of those cases, you know, you never take, even something, you think, well, I'm not taking phenobarbital. These are Muscle relaxants, relaxacets, you know those like, uh, muscle relaxant kind of drugs you take, vital in the counter? That'll kill you too. Don't take a couple of those. Oh, my back's sore, and I just shoveled the driveway because the snow was really heavy. Remember that last week? Yes. So you take a couple of those pills, you don't then have a couple of drinks because you die. 
They're serious when they say don't take with alcohol. By the way, I'm not some kind of prohibitionist. I drink a lot. I'm just saying. You should do it responsibly and carefully. Um, okay, how are you going to get the drugs in you? Well, um, the first thing you need, unless you're smoking it or something like that, very often if you're injecting it in any way, you need a vehicle. The vehicle is almost always safe. Right? You don't just inject. Well, you can't. You can't just take powdered heroin and just force it into your veins. It doesn't work. Because I've tried. <laughs> Perhaps I'm revealing a little too much about my mistake here. I never did heroin. It's one of those scary drugs, heroin, you know. I've seen people on heroin. That's, uh, they look like they're having a lot of fun. But man, no. I've seen people do take, smoke opium. A friend of mine, uh, guy Petri, and I won't tell you his last name, but his name was Petri. He was from Sweden. Yeah, my name is Petri. I'm from Sweden. Want to do some opium? Dude, I just met you. I only just met you. No, it'll be great. We'll listen to some Bob Marley, man, and we'll do some opium. <laughs> I gotta go. That's it. I'm out of here. I often wonder what happened to Petri. Petri. He was an undergrad. What a same place I was. Okay, so the slowest absorption you're gonna get is from subcutaneous, just like right under the skin, not into a vein, just underneath the skin. Now, why would you do that? Because you're not doing it to get high. Right? You're doing it in this case, you're doing it for something therapeutic. Like, for example, you want to get really slow absorption of, of some medicine. You don't want to have peaks and valleys with something that's controlling a, psychi a psychiatric disorder. You want to have nice slow absorption. Uh, you can go intramuscular, I am injection, that's just right into, uh, usually, right into your ass, right? Because it's a big muscle. But you can go into a leg, something like that, just a big muscle. That's going to be a little quicker. Uh, intraperitoneal, it, well, it's the fastest of these so far. That's right into the uh, gut, IV injection. Again, this is usually for medical purposes. You're not doing this for fun. It's not like, oh, yeah, I've got the heroin ready. Here we go. <laughs> yes? Isn't that what they do with rabies? Yeah. Yeah, rabies actually is IV injection. Yeah. That's right. I mean, from what I understand, I've never, never had rabies, uh, never had cause to give anybody rabies shots, from what I understand. Um, so, again, these are, for so far, pretty much medical things. Uh, intravenous, now we're talking about when we're doing it perhaps for fun. So, IV injections, you find a vein. Now, again, you also would get IV injections medically. Right? So you want to just get, again, this could be a medicine of some sort, but it could also be used um, like an antibiotic or something. I know when my brother-in-law was uh, had his meningitis, uh, he was getting like the world's best, most powerful antibiotics pumped right into his vein in his arm. Of course, right? They want that all the way in there. Now, if you want a nice, quick route to the brain, you go right to the bloodstream. So when you take heroin, or you inject cocaine, or really any kind of injection drug, you're going to go with an IV injection. So you go right into a vein. 
So you tie it off and the whole thing. And you've seen, you ever seen the movie Train Spotting? Yeah. Watch that movie. <laughs> think about Train Spotting, there's only one scene that I found really upsetting. It's the one with the little baby. I had to look away at that point. The rest of the movie's really good. And it actually shows the pattern of heroin use among young people in Britain really well. It does a really nice job of it. And at times it's exceedingly funny, too. Yeah, it's funny laughing at junkies, you know, it's kind of thing. It's so, so that's an IV injection. Um, intraventricular, you go right into the ventricles of the heart, or right into the ventricles of the brain. Either way, they both need the same thing. Again, that wouldn't be done. You don't do that for fun. <laughs> right? It's not like Pulp Fiction. Rattle the needle. Everything eventually gets into the bloodstream, obviously, except IV injections that are right into the bloodstream already through diffusion. Um, inhalation roughly works the same way. So when you're inhaling something, so that could be uh, usually smoking something, um, that's going to go... These could be gases that are created during the burning, or they could be solids, right, in the smoke. And they go from the lungs directly, as you, you all know this, from the lungs right into the bloodstream. <coughs> now, if you're taking something orally, um, because it's got to go through your gut, right, so you're taking a pill or you're taking a drink, or you're eating cookies with weed in them. That's not a, your whole house smells horrible though for days. Or so I am told. Um, this, the absorption is gonna depend on the lipid solubility. So the more soluble in fat something is, the more soluble in lipids, the um, easier the absorption is going to be. Ionized molecules of the drug aren't going to be uh, absorbed, and the rate of absorption from your gut is constant. stream has got to get past the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is basically made of myelin. Okay? It protects the brain from, from different foreign substances entering it. It's a pretty important thing to, you know, you don't want to screw around with the brain. Now, some things get across that membrane, the blood-brain barrier, through active transport. They're actually pulled across uh, through various physiological pumps. Some things just do passive transport because they fit through the blood-brain barrier. I like to think of the blood-brain barrier as a, like a sieve. It really isn't. But it's kind of like that, such that some things make it through and other things are left there and have to be pulled through your spine you know, you do it yourself. Uh, sometimes you get a protein, proteins that will bind to drug molecules and they'll stop uh, the drugs 
drug molecules from getting through the blood-brain barrier. And as everything else is, this is all taken out of the bloodstream by the kidneys and the liver. And we measure drug concentrations in half-life. Right? Uh, well, sorry, we measure the, the, the excretion in half-life. Yep, to get to the brain, yeah. That's an effect on the brain, but you have an effect somewhere else, though. So what kind of drugs can't get past that? Uh, well, a good example here would be just giving you dopamine. So if you had Parkinson's disease, you might think, well, it's not enough dopamine. Let's just give you dopamine, except that dopamine can't make it through the blood-brain barrier, which is odd because it's a neurotransmitter, but it can't make it through the blood-brain barrier. But L-dopa, levodopa can, and it's a precursor, and it's a dopamine agonist. So you give it levodopa, L-dopa, to... Parkinson's patients or drugs like it, and they make it through the blood-brain barrier, and then dopaminergic neurons take it up and make it into turn it into dopamine very quickly. Um, so that's that's one example. I mean, it turns out that uh, heroin on its own can't make it through the blood-brain barrier. But excuse me, heroin is ten times more liquid soluble than regular morphine, and for some reason we have an enzyme that takes diacetylmorphine, that's what heroin is, and lops off one of the acetyl groups and turns it into acetylmorphine, <coughs> which goes through the blood-brain barrier no problem. But it's 10 times more lipid soluble, so it's absorbed more quickly. Heroin's just like really good morphine is all this. There's nothing magical about heroin. Um, heroin should be, and it is, in fact, in Canada and the United Kingdom, is actually used uh, in uh, palliative care terminal cancer patients as a, as a painkiller. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a much more potent and effective painkiller than regular morphine. Right? It works better. But, you know, in the States, they've declared war on drugs. Right? Because they have wars now in the States about, about nouns. We don't, attack, remember, we don't attack countries anymore. Now we have war on nouns. So it's drugs, terror. Yeah. Because they're afraid to say we're fighting, you know, Al Qaeda. So they say we're going to have a war on terror. It's like having a war on scariness. <laughs> we're going to have a war on chairs. We have a war on yellow. We hate the color yellow. We will attack it at every turn, and we need a billion dollars to do it. <laughs> and I think they've got a lot of yellow stuff in Iran. <laughs> That might have been a little political, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> just a little. But, see, it's interesting because heroin actually is a really good example of, and think about this as we talk about this, but and all this stuff. It's a really good example of a drug that has a perfectly good legal use. That's also really dangerous and can kill you. Don't misunderstand me. But gasoline's really dangerous when you huff it. We don't outlaw gasoline, do we? Because it's also pretty useful. Right? So this is what's happened, for example, that OxyContin, which is a, a, an opiate. It's, it's a synthetic opiate. It's a really good drug as far as being a painkiller. It's great at it. You can put, make it fill form, take them, great. And people also abuse it. But just because, and this is one, and I'm going to present that argument as one I believe in. Just because something can be abused, and is abused, don't misunderstand me, and people do waste their lives on OxyContin. Yeah, they do. But does that mean we should stop using a perfectly good product because some people are going to have a problem, drug problem? I don't know. You can abuse anything. 
that's sort of the point I would make. I mean, you know, if we banned all drugs, you know what people would do? They'd just spin around like this till they got really dizzy. Kind of pleasant. <laughs> um, so this is the kind of thing that, you know, people are always going to abuse drugs. To do. We've been doing that since we were humans. Yeah. Yeah. Alcohol is a great example. And in countries where they ban alcohol, all that happens is there's places to get alcohol, or people drink a lot of coffee, smoke a lot of tobacco. They still end up getting kind of... I don't think it helps anybody. So imagine this in Half-Life. Um, the whole thing with City Center. Um, so the thing is, typically, if we say it's got like a drug has a one-hour Half-Life, that means that if you took 100 milligrams in an hour, 50 milligrams are still left in your system. Another hour, 25 milligrams left. Another hour, 12 and a half. And yes, I can keep dividing by two in my head. It's really impressive. So half of it goes away. Just like if you know radioactive decay, you probably learned about that in high school chemistry or physics or something. Same kind of idea. What affects metabolism? Age. Typically, your metabolism slows the older you get. Sex. So typically, very often there's differences between males, women, and men in, in these kind of things. Uh, your species changes, uh, changes metabolism. For example, um, adult humans can metabolize caffeine at, at, at beautifully. We're really good at it. We have a special metabolic pathway, adult humans, that no other species on this planet has. Um, little kids don't have that. Metabolism, that metabolic pathway, and neither do, you know, chips or dogs, right, or whatever. So that's, that's why, for example, you, you can't do caffeine studies on rats. Well, you can, but it doesn't tell you anything about people. It doesn't tell you anything about people. Right, because the metabolic pathway is different. It'll, what it will tell you about is how caffeine metabolism would be like in a Half-life of caffeine in an adult human is somewhere between 30 minutes and one and one and a half hours. The half-life of caffeine in a toddler is three and a half days. <laughs> Don't give little kids coke unless you've got a lot of free time. Because <laughs> you're going to be awake a lot. But I mean, you know, and you just want to, you know, your mom always said, you're too young for that. No, you're too young for that. She's right about coffee. But you hit like 10, 11, 12, you're about a coffee you want, I don't care. Seems reasonable. I started drinking coffee when I was 12, and I turned out okay. And as we know, an N of 1 is perfectly good evidence. Enzyme induction and enzyme suppression. So this can happen, I talked about this. If, uh, you know, diff- well, you know, metabolism basically works, that enzymes break things down, break molecules down. You all know that, especially the biology students who are rolling their eyes going, I know, Dave. <laughs> um, but it's often the case that one drug that you're ingesting will depress the uh, synthesis of a different enzyme you need for a different drug. It's also the case that certain foods do that. Right. So, for example, nicotine 
uh, induces enzymes that help in the caffeine metabolism, which kind of explains that smokers drink more coffee because they need more coffee to have the same effect. Okay. Uh, nicotine uh, induces one of the enzymes that's used in caffeine metabolism. So it makes caffeine metabolism faster. Like, uh, <laughs> no, but there is actually a relationship between uh, alcohol and... Um, there's an alcohol... There's an, the alcohol, by the way, is very well understood still. But... Part of the alcohol, one of the, there's two pathways for the alcohol to be metabolized, and there is an enzyme that then binds to nicotonic receptors, and in essence makes you crave cigarettes when you drink, <coughs> if you only smoke, or if you have smoke. This explains why there's all those people, I only drink when I, I only smoke when I drink. And there are people like that, right? It can also work the other way. So you get induction, you can get depression. The more common one is the enzyme depression, it seems to me. It's the one that's a little more scary because that's the one that, oh, suddenly your, your two breaks is suddenly just the same as having five because you've taken a certain drug. Putting absorption and excretion together, you get the time course of the drug. So what we have here is, here's your absorption, which is going to be a curve like this. It's exponential. Excretion is going to be a curve like this. We add this, we take this curve, and we subtract this curve, and we get this. So as you can see, you get a peak, and then it goes down. Somebody looks at the things so we can all try out what that was funny. That would happen. Just for a second. I mean, I don't know if I was standing. So you see what I'm saying here? You take the absorption and you subtract the excretion and you get this time course function. Right? Pretty straightforward. I hope. Why did I make that noise? Yeah. <gasps> you want to maintain enough of the drug in the system to get your primary effect. That's that's. It doesn't matter if you're if you're if you're doing bomb hits or you're taking any psychotic drugs. So you could be doing it to be high, you could be doing it for, because you want to not hear the voices and have the paranoia anymore. But either way, you want to have the right amount of drug in the system to get the effect you're interested in. This is easy if the drug has a long time course. So that time course function, if it's nice and long, it's going to be a lot easier to maintain. This is what you, very typically, you're going to get a long time course if you take a drug orally, takes longer to metabolize. You might want to take the drug, the, the delivery mechanism, and coat it in something to make it take longer to break down. All these kind of things. You might want to take the drug and uh, 
a lot of these drugs now, of course, are, they're all developed by big companies, so what they do is they want to make it so it takes longer to metabolize, so you get this nice long therapeutic window. And happily, I corrected that. It's harder if the time course is shorter. <coughs> Once you download it, probably still say longer, which is a complete contradiction of the previous sentence. Um, so it's a lot harder if the time course is shorter. Well, yeah, of course, because look, if you take the drug and it peaks right away and goes right down, then you have to take more drug again. On the other hand, you want a big high peak if you're doing it recreationally often. Right? So you want the rush you get from heroin, you want the like that. That's the reason you're taking heroin. You're not taking it to get a long effect. Right? So you can often take care of this through the root of administration, the time course of the drug. Questions so far? Okay. So drug-taking behavior is interesting behavior. So psychologically, it's interesting behavior. Um, drug-taking behavior is odd behavior. It really is, when you think about it. It's not avoiding pain in any way. And I don't mean someone who's in withdrawal from something. Right? Clearly, drugs don't affect all people the same way either. Right? Because some people can be social drinkers and other people become alcoholics. Some people can smoke weed once on a weekend. Other people suddenly devote their lives to it. Right? And all they do. You want to get high? Well, no. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no, I have to go to school. Well, school, man. It's way better when you're high. No, it isn't. It really isn't. It's funnier for a while. And everyone knows you're high because they're not stupid. And you don't need the drug. When I say need, I mean, yes, I know. I've said this. God, I need a drink. Nightly, I say this. But, or if you smoke, you know, you say, God, I can really need a cigarette. But you know that you could live without it. It's not like air. It's not like water. It's not like food. So it's, it's an odd kind of behavior because, because of these things. Um, I know why you have a drug problem. It's because you are a loser, a junkie, a coward, uh, just a bad person. <laughs> really. You lack moral fiber. Yeah, I'm gonna get up here and call. After I told people that they can take any drugs they want, I think I'm gonna call them. Yeah, come on. <laughs> so this idea, first of all, is not uncommon among a lot of people still to this day. Right? You will hear people say this, right? Or versions of it. You will also, for example, you should also realize that this was what people thought for the longest time. This was the common sort of medical view of people that had problems with drinking or problems with any kind of drug. Right. Now along came a different idea, and that's the disease model. So maybe it's not your character or your morality. 
Oh, okay. So you're not a complete loser. It's a disease. That's what it is. You're sick. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a disorder. It's a disorder. We don't call them diseases anymore. You have disorder. Because we're afraid to use words like disease. Soon, eventually, we're only going to have one word left. We're just going to say, uh. If everybody's afraid to offend somebody, we just have one word left. Let's look at each other and go, uh. Oh, yeah. everything by, I don't know, all through sign, all through miming. <laughs> so, yeah, so today we call it a disorder. This started with alcoholism. And people started looking at people being, who were alcoholics. And by the way, the idea that someone's a bad person or all that stuff, you still see that attitude in people when you hear about people when they say that someone has a drinking problem. They're, you know, yes, we all recognize it's a real thing, but you will also see that undercurrent of, you know, just stop drinking so much, you loser. <clears throat> right? Seriously. I mean, that, that's out there still. So, but when Alcoholics Anonymous started up, this is in the early 1900s, they started thinking about alcohol uh, taking uh, to excess. As being a disease. Hey, Gary, yep. You have a mouse in the trap in the far window. Of a what? With a who? Go in the far window. Oh, yeah. Everybody look over there. <laughs> um, here's my question. What's the disease mechanism? And we've had the disease model now for 100 years. Ish. <clears throat> and no one knows the disease mechanism. Now, I'm not saying if you don't know the disease mechanism, it's not a disease. Because, you know, when AIDS first showed up on the scene in the late 70s, people didn't know what it was. In fact, it was originally called gay cancer. And I'm not making that up. It really was. Because uh, it was mostly homosexual people getting really weird, really rare cancers. They didn't know what the disease mechanism was. It's clearly a real thing. So don't. That's not the only piece of evidence that I got, that this isn't a disease. But, but, after a hundred years, you would think there'd be something. No. no. Nothing that everybody agrees on. You know, everybody agrees, it took what? With AIDS, it took about five years. It's like, oh, you know what it is? It's this virus. Or cancer. It's like, well, they don't know how no people know how cancer works. It's a question of stopping it. Okay? Don't know yet. That's kind of a sign to me that maybe it's not a disease. People will say, you bet it's genetic. Alcoholism runs in families. It's true, it does. So is your eye color. Do you call that a disease? <laughs> no. Oh yeah, okay. So your answer to that is so what? Because something's genetic doesn't make it a disease or not a disease. It's a characteristic. I will give you that. Certainly a characteristic. But so does, you know, nurturing level running families. We don't call that a disease. Sometimes I make jokes to myself, for myself. I don't say them out loud. They're really funny. Um, 
So the idea of being a disease is kind of wanting. I, I can't find a good, I can't get behind the idea that it's a disease. Especially when we have other behaviors that totally fit in and look a lot like drug-taking behavior. Have the same effect on your life, have the same pattern of use. We can talk about people playing too much World of Warcraft or Starcraft. We can talk about people looking at too much porn. We can talk about people shopping or eating too much. And those behaviors are very similar. The pattern to problem drug take. I'm not talking about like most people can take drugs and they're fine. That's right apart. Around me, any friends of mine, any acquaintances of mine? Well, it depends. Some acquaintances, you know, yeah, okay. Because they're on that list I have. Well, the thing is, people do look sick when they stop taking heroin. People, and I don't know, anybody here ever had a hangover? That's not pleasant. It's actually mini withdrawal from alcohol. It's nothing like withdrawal from alcohol that a proper drinker, like an alcoholic professional gets. But it's still, it, it's similar. It's similar. So the original idea here was that withdrawal from morphine was caused by something. That, and that's a sensible, again, this isn't true, by the way. This isn't, there's no such thing as autotoxin. But it's the idea that physically your body, when you started to metabolize morphine, also made a poison called autotoxin, which is a great name. It's also very bad for cars. Autotoxin? <laughs> no? Getting late? Okay. This was found to be lacking. In other words, it doesn't exist. Basically, the notion was you start breaking down morphine, and it turns into like a poison, and it makes you sick. Okay. I like that. It's wrong, but I like it. Oh, you know what the only cure for autotoxin is? More morphine. <laughs> so it makes you, if you've got autotoxin poisoning, this is the idea. The only way to stop autotoxin poisoning is to take some more morphine. Take some more morphine, because then autotoxin poisoning goes away. But it eventually leads to more autotoxin. You know, it's, it's a nice kind of theory. It's just completely and utterly wrong. Hey, yep? Is that the idea where people take methadone to get out of the... No, methadone actually makes complete sense, because what methadone does is it... Um, it is the same thing, No, what methadone is doing is it's not giving you the high. Uh, it's binding to receptors, but not the ones that make you feel good. It's only binding to the uh, ones that cause the withdrawal uh, Yeah. So this is a very popular idea today, the idea of a physical dependence, that your body is producing some kind of poison that can be gotten rid of because you take more drugs. And on that note, we'll pack it in for today, and I will see you guys on Tuesday. Thanks.
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.